Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. Welcome to a very spooky pre-Halloween, late October, episode 37 of Criminal Broads, the history and true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer. Don't ask me how I got myself into this field of writing about criminal women, but I have a book out about female serial killers called Lady Killers that you can purchase today, and I am wrapping up a book about lady con artists. And then I've got this podcast, which is about all the other criminal broads of the world, from cult leaders to uh, that one broad who killed her fortune teller. Anyway, um, I'm happy to be here, happy to be telling you an extra spooky story for this episode. But before we get started, I want to remind you all that if you live anywhere near New York City, and I'm talking within 300 miles, grab your friends get a road trip happening, get some road trip snacks, and come to the first ever live Criminal Broads event, which is happening on Wednesday, October 30th. It's an event called Female Persuasion on Women-Led Cults, and I am going to be talking about, surprise, surprise, lady cult leaders with Rebecca Sebastian, who is the host of the podcast Dialogue. Tickets are $14 if you grab them online now before the event itself. You can also buy them at the door. And uh, you can go to caveat.nyc to buy them. So that's C-A-V-E-A-T dot N-Y-C. Go to the events page, scroll, scroll, scroll until you see my name or like a really cool millennial pink logo. (laughs) Um, So it's going to be a fun event. And possibly the funnest part is that there's going to be trivia about cults, which I know my listeners are going to know. And you can win things like chocolate bars or a copy of my book or even a haunted trolley ride. So please come out. I would love to see you there. Okay, other announcements. This is the last Criminal Broads episode. Not of all time. Don't panic. Don't throw things. But the last one before I go on my maternity leave. So I am... uh, you know, I'm excited. I'm obviously very excited for my maternity leave and whatever cute small infant I hope to be meeting in a couple of weeks, but I'm also sad to be leaving the podcast for a while, and I hope you will all, uh, I hope you won't be too inconsolable. Another reason I have to duck out of the podcast world for a bit is because, guys, um, my book is due. My book is due very soon. My book is due sooner than my baby, and I mean, I got to finish it, you know. And by the way, I just can't wait till this book comes out and you can all check it out and let me know what you think and hopefully like it. Okay, enough about me. Let's talk a little bit more about me. Um, I decided that for my last episode before maternity leave, I wanted to do a famous case. So this woman that we're talking about today is someone who I've gotten a lot of requests for. She is probably... I would say she's the most famous female serial killer after Eileen Wuornos. A lot of people ask me if she was in my book, Lady Killers, and she is not in my book, not because it's not a good story, but because there's already an amazing book written about her. The book is called Fatal, and it's by Harold Schechter, who is, uh, well, we had him on episode eight of the podcast, I think, uh, the one about Belle Guinness. 
Actually, is this woman more or less famous than Belle Guinness? I don't know. Debate amongst yourselves and let me know. Anyway, Harold Schechter is like the king of true crime. So um, he wrote a book about this woman, and that meant that I was not going to also try. But uh, thank God he wrote that book because it was my main source for this episode, and uh, the research is incredible. And I just want to say that I have known about this woman for ages, of course, and I always kind of thought that sometimes in true crime, there are these stories and the most salacious details are not the ones that are true. I that This happens to me all the time when I'm researching. Um, and even when I'm like doing book events or whatever, people will ask me like, well, what about the rumor that she did such and such? And I'm like, I hate to tell you it, but that came, you know, that rumor started decades after she died because we humans are creepy and we just like extra creepy stories. And sometimes if stories aren't creepy enough, we add to them. So I guess I always kind of thought that this female serial killer couldn't have possibly been as creepy as, say, her Wikipedia entry makes her out to be. After reading this book, Fatal by Harold Schechter, and diving into her case, I gotta say, what was I thinking? This is one of the scariest cases of all time. And this woman, and I don't mean for this to be a compliment, but she is up there with the most famous serial killers that this country has produced, the Jeffrey Dahmers, the John Wayne Gacy's, the BTK's. I mean, this, I don't understand how people can think that there aren't female serial killers after reading this story. I mean, anyway, um, I'm rambling about it now, but needless to say, this is a very scary story. I would not recommend playing it while in the car with your three-year-old. And uh, it is terrible, but it is kind of fitting for Halloween. So without further ado, we, I'm going to tell you the story of Jane Toppin, possibly the worst female serial killer of all time. And we are going to the state of Massachusetts at the turn of the century, around the late 1800s, where we are going to start in the horrifying setting of a hospital ward at night. Mrs. Amelia Finney lay in her hospital bed. She was in a great deal of pain. She had an ulcer in her uterus, and she'd come to the hospital to have it removed, which meant, at the very end of the 1800s, burning the ulcer off with silver nitrate. After the procedure, the doctors put Amelia into a hospital bed to rest, but she couldn't rest. The pain was too bad. So she lay there, wide awake, praying for relief. Suddenly, there was a light in her room. Then, there was a figure standing by her bed. Amelia looked up through the fog of pain and realized that her night nurse, Jane Toppin, was standing over her. That wouldn't have been particularly weird. The night nurse was supposed to check on patients during the night, after all, except that Jane Toppin had a very strange look on her face. It was a look of extreme something. She looked intense, maybe even a little bit excited. Amelia looked back at her and begged her to go get the doctor. Jane replied calmly, there is no need for that. I have something to make you feel better. Here, 
drink this. And she held out a cup. Writhing in agony, Amelia took the cup and drank. There was a strange, bitter liquid inside, but she could feel it working immediately. Her body started to go numb. She felt herself falling, falling, falling asleep. But before she went totally unconscious, something else happened. She felt someone pulling the sheets off her body. She felt someone get into bed with her. She felt someone press against her, hold her. That someone was stroking her hair. That someone was kissing her on the face. Horrified and struggling to process the situation through the fog of the drug she'd just been given, Amelia realized that Nurse Jane Toppin was in the bed with her, cuddling her, caressing her, kissing her face, whispering that it would all be okay very, very soon. Amelia could feel the nurse breathing. Her breath was fast, excited. At one point, Jane pulled back Amelia's eyelids and stared at her pupils. She then tried to get Amelia to take another drink, but Amelia managed to call on the last fragment of strength she had and clench her lips and refuse the liquid. Just then, Jane heard something. Maybe someone was coming. All Amelia knew was that at that moment, Jane Toppin sprang out of her bed and left. The next morning... Amelia was so shaken by the event that she convinced herself it had all been a dream, the delirious imaginings of a woman in pain. It hadn't been a dream. Twenty-five years earlier, an alcoholic named Peter Kelly showed up at an orphanage in Boston with his two little girls in tow. Their names were Delia and Honora. Up until that point, life with their father had been awful. He was violent, abusive, and probably insane. People called him Kelly the Crack, as in, Peter Kelly is a crackpot. One legend about his bizarre behavior says that towards the end of his life, he was working in a tailor shop when he sewed his own eyes closed. Needless to say, when Peter Kelly abandoned his two little girls at the orphanage and walked out of their lives forever, it wasn't a huge tragedy for Delia or for Honora. Of course, life at the orphanage was no picnic either, especially not in 1863. Some of the orphans there were eventually adopted, but most of them were turned into indentured servants. The rich wives of Boston saw these girls as a fantastic deal, a wonderful source of cheap labor. As was typical, Delia and Honora were only at the orphanage for a few years before they themselves became indentured servants. In later years, Delia's life would follow the trajectory of her father's. As an adult, she'd become an alcoholic and die in poverty. But Honora's life would have a bit of a different outcome. She was placed into servitude with a family called the Toppins when she was about eight years old. They didn't adopt her, and they never would, but they let her use their name. No longer was she Honora Kelly. Now, she was Jane Toppin. Despite her new name, Jane was and would always be Irish, and her new family never let her forget that. 
In the mid-1800s, the Irish, especially the Irish Catholic, faced rampant discrimination from Protestant Americans who thought they were disease-ridden criminals. Boston was full of Irish immigrants and full of backlash against those immigrants as store owners put up signs that read, No Irish Need Apply. Against this backdrop, little Jane Toppin was never allowed to forget that she was Irish and that that meant she was just a little bit less worthy than the rest of the Toppin family. This tension was exacerbated by the fact that the Toppins had a biological daughter who was about Jane's age, pretty little Elizabeth, who was everything that Jane was not. She wasn't the abandoned daughter of an Irish drunk. She was the real daughter of a stable, wealthy Boston family. She wasn't an indentured servant. She was the heiress herself. And as the two girls grew up, Elizabeth was the one who received attention from men, while Jane languished in the background, forced to be satisfied with little more than her own romantic daydreams. Elizabeth even married a deacon named Oromel Brigham. And Jane? Jane kept working as a servant, and eventually started working for Elizabeth, her rival. It was a bitter cup to swallow. Perhaps as a means of surviving, or a way of making people like her, Jane developed a knack for storytelling. If Jane Toppin were there, it wasn't necessary to provide any other entertainment, said one of her childhood friends later. On the surface, she was chatty, friendly, and easy to like. She was the sort of person you wanted at your parties. You'd let her watch your children. You'd be happy to offer her a piece of cake and a cup of tea and let her spin her tails and amuse you. Beneath her chatty surface, though, there lurked an entirely different Jane. Yes, she was a great storyteller, but she was also a pathological liar, and this drove some people crazy. She said that her father had sailed around the world, that her brother had been given a medal of honor by President Lincoln, and that her sister was married to an English lord. She was also a terrible gossip, always spreading malicious lies about her schoolmates. It wasn't just that she spread lies about them. She seemed to want them to suffer from her lies, and so she would tell rumors that were calculated to get them in trouble. People who saw this side of Jane also noticed that, infuriatingly, she was extremely good at weaseling out of trouble. She was an expert at blaming her own mistakes on other people and then using her charms to slither away from punishment. Authority figures often saw the friendly, sparkly side of Jane, while her peers often saw the tricky, lying side. It was strange how a single person could appear so different to so many people. Jane remained with the Toppins, working for them, never quite one of them, until she was almost 30 years old. Finally, though, she moved out. She was ready for a new job, ready to take charge of her own life. She was ready, too, to do what she wanted to do, instead of always responding to the demands of her foster mother and foster sister. And Jane knew exactly what sort of job she wanted to get next. She wanted a job where she could care for people, lots of people, where she could watch over them, make sure they were comfortable, and tend to their every dying wish. In 
1887, Jane Toppin applied to a nursing school in Boston and began the grueling process of becoming a professional nurse. She was quite strong after her years as a servant, which were great preparation for the physically demanding work of nursing, and her ability to put on a charming, personable front made her a hit with the patients and with many of her bosses. She was so charming, in fact, that she was given a nickname, Jolly Jane. Jolly Jane. Who wouldn't want to be nursed by Jolly Jane? Everyone wanted to be nursed by Jolly Jane, except for, again, the people who saw through her facade. She was exceptionally devious, writes her biographer, Harold Schechter, with an uncanny flair for escaping the consequences of her own wrongdoing while implicating others as the culprits. Twice, she spread such bad rumors about her classmates that the poor girls were kicked out of the training program. Each time that happened, Jane was openly gleeful about it. In fact, she had a weird habit of joking about things that didn't really seem to be a joke. For instance, she liked to joke about how much she hated elderly patients. Sometimes she'd look around with a big smile on her face and say that there was, quote, no use in keeping old people alive. Ha ha ha. Oh, Jolly Jane. You know how Jolly Jane is with her weird stories about how her sister married an English lord and her father sailed around the world and how she wants all old people to die. Oh, Jolly Jane is just too much. As Jane learned the tricks of the nursing trade, which medications would produce which effects in patients and what doses were appropriate and what doses weren't appropriate, she was still lying left and right. She told people, for example, that the Tsar of Russia had offered her a job on his own personal medical staff and that she was thinking of taking it. Her co-workers also started to suspect that she was a bit of a thief. They could never catch her in the act, but things tended to go missing when Jane Toppin was around. It was annoying. Some of her co-workers wanted her fired. But no one had any idea that the gossip and the lies and the thieving paled in comparison to Jane's real crimes. No one had any idea what Jane was doing late at night when no one else was around. Early on in her nursing, Jane had discovered that she liked morphine. She liked what it did to the human body. She liked to watch. In the dead of night, she'd conduct her experiments. She'd creep into her patients' bedrooms and inject them with a healthy dose of morphine, and then she'd stand there and watch what happened. She'd watch as the patient broke into a cold sweat. She'd listen to their breath grow louder and louder. Sometimes they fell into a coma. Sometimes they'd convulse violently for a while. She really liked that part. Then Jane discovered that she could combine morphine with another popular painkiller, atropine. For her, the two drugs contrasted deliciously with each other. While morphine quieted her patients down, atropine made them flail around wildly, babbling and groaning and clawing at the air. She liked to play around with the two drugs, up and down, yin and yang, like some sort of mad artist combining two different paints on a canvas. She experimented with how she gave the drugs, too. 
Sometimes she injected them into her patients. Sometimes she dissolved them into bitter mineral water and asked the poor dears to drink up, drink up. Sometimes, if her patients were really out of it, she'd put the poisons into an enema and deliver them that way. And then she'd watch and watch and shudder with pleasure. Sometimes she decided to bring her patients back from the brink of death, but other times, many times, she let them die. For her, that was the best part, the true climax of the event. Just as she'd done with Amelia Finney, she loved to crawl into bed with them and hold them as the life drained out of their bodies. It seemed too awful to be true, but it was true. Jane Toppin was sexually aroused by death and could only be satiated by wrapping her strong arms around her patients and kissing their clammy foreheads and feeling death overtake them. The truth of what Jane Toppin was doing on her shifts was so horrible that no one suspected a thing. Sure, patients died on her watch, but patients were dying on everybody's watch. It was the 1880s, and medicine simply wasn't what it is today. Besides, it wasn't strange for a certain percentage of patients to die in a hospital. It wasn't strange for nurses to give injections, to linger over sickbeds. Jane had chosen the perfect place to practice her dark art. However, even though Jane's bosses tended to love her and she was advancing in her career, her old habits, lying, stealing, gossiping, eventually caught up with her. She was fired from two hospitals for breaking various rules. Her bosses had no idea, of course, what other rules she'd been breaking. And she never ended up getting her nursing license. But that was okay with Jane. If she couldn't be a nurse in a hospital, she'd pick an even more lucrative, intimate career. She'd become a private nurse. She'd be so much closer to her patients then. She'd be living with them, in their homes, watching over them night and day, until she decided that it was time to say goodbye. From 1892 to 1900, Jane Toppin was one of the most respected and desired nurses in Cambridge, where she'd moved after her training in Boston. As a private nurse, she had unlimited access to people's final moments, and she took full advantage of it. She got to work right away, killing the elderly couple she was living with because they had the audacity to be elderly. She called the man feeble and fussy, and the woman old and cranky, and for those sins, in Jane's eyes, they deserved to die. She nursed a 70-year-old widow to death next, and during the entire ordeal, the widow's granddaughter was incredibly impressed with Jane's cheerful, professional manner. But for Jane, murders like these were just side dishes. The main course was yet to come. Like many psychopaths, Jane could experience intense feelings of sorrow and pity, but only for herself. And nothing in the world made her feel more sad and full of pity for herself than the memory of her foster sister, Elizabeth, the prettier, whiter, more successful, more beloved daughter, the one with a husband, the one with a real family. When Jane thought about Elizabeth, she was filled with a rage and resentment that she could never let go of. And so, she decided to do something about it. 
Over the years, Jane had visited Elizabeth and her husband, and she always acted friendly. And so when Jane asked her sister to come along on her annual summer vacation to Cape Cod, Elizabeth didn't think the invitation was strange. In fact, Elizabeth hadn't been feeling so well lately, and so a beach vacation sounded lovely. She showed up to Jane's little rental cottage on a Friday in August of 1899. The two sisters spent the day frolicking on the beach in white dresses. But that night, Elizabeth started feeling sick. Her condition worsened and worsened. By Tuesday, she was dead. Jane had killed plenty of people before killing Elizabeth, but this killing was different. Elizabeth was the first of my victims, Jane said later, that I actually hated and poisoned with a vindictive purpose. Because of this, Jane made sure that Elizabeth's death was especially drawn out and painful. And then, during Elizabeth's last moments, Jane crept into bed with her. I held her in my arms, Jane said, and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. Two years later, by the summer of 1901, Jane was really spiraling. She'd been bad before, but she'd managed to keep the main part of her psychopathy, the murderous part, under wraps. Sure, she kept getting fired from jobs because she couldn't stop lying and stealing, but no one ever suspected that she wasn't just stealing her patients' pocketbooks, but was also killing them. No one suspected her because she had the perfect disguise. She was the nurse. The very fact that she was in your home meant that you were sort of at risk of dying anyway. She was supposed to be hovering over you, supposed to be touching your body, giving you injections, handing you cold glasses of water to drink. Everything that Jane did as a killer looked like something she was supposed to do as a nurse. Well, everything except the crawling into bed part, but she never let anyone else see that. Decades later, scientists would identify this type of serial killer as an angel of death, a caregiver who intentionally harms or kills those that they are supposed to be caring for. Angels of death have always been extremely hard to spot. Of all the serial killers, they are the ones who hide in the plainest sight. Anyway, by the summer of 1901, Jane was dabbling in arson and had decided to kill an entire family. For five years, she'd been renting the same summer cottage in Cape Cod from a family called the Davises, and they loved her. She was affable, friendly, and useful to have around because she always knew the best remedies for all the little ailments that cropped up during a summer vacation. In fact, the whole town loved her. Parents were always letting her watch their children. Sometimes she'd take an entire group of kids down to the beach and have a nice little picnic. Now, the Davis family always let Jane rent their cottage at a discount, but as the years went by, she never quite paid them what she owed. By the early summer of 1901, she owed them $500. That's about $15,000 today. It was a lot of money, and Maddie, the mother, was getting a little bit fed up with all of Jane's excuses. So Maddie decided to pay a visit to Jane in Cambridge, where Jane worked as a nurse during the year. She was planning to ask Jane to finally pay off her debt. Jane didn't like this. She didn't like Mattie's audacity, asking for her debt to be paid, the nerve. And so, when Mattie arrived, 
Jane took one look at her and immediately offered her a large glass of her signature mineral water, saying, You must be very thirsty after your trip. Maddie drank up. It wasn't long before she was collapsing to the floor, groaning. Jane helped her into a spare bedroom, took out her trusty hypodermic needle, and shot her full of morphine until Maddie fell quiet. Luckily for Jane, the day was very hot, and Maddie had actually fallen earlier that morning on her way out the door, so when her family heard that she was ailing, they were surprised but not shocked. Over the next seven days, Jane drugged Maddie to the edge of death and then brought her back into consciousness and then returned her to a coma again, over and over, until the poor woman finally breathed her last. And then Jane showed up to Maddie's funeral, dressed in black, pretending to mourn, and secretly chuckling to herself as she looked around at all the other family members. She had decided that she was going to kill them all. Her reason? She didn't really have one. It was just something to do. Something that would bring her pleasure. Jane rented the Davis family's little cottage for the summer, as she always did, and started setting little fires around the Davises' house, pretending that she had no idea how they got started. Then she set her sights on the younger Davis daughter, 31-year-old Genevieve. Genevieve was grieving her mother's death, hard, and so Jane started a rumor that Genevieve was suicidal and that she'd seen the girl eyeing a box of arsenic. Jane then began dousing Genevieve with her go-to poisons. It didn't take the young woman long to die. The doctor who examined Genevieve's body said that she died of heart disease, while Jane continued to claim that Genevieve had killed herself. At that funeral, Jane said later, she felt, quote, as jolly as could be. Less than two weeks later, she killed Alden Davis, the father. He returned home one day, exhausted by the heat, so Jane happily fixed him a tall, cold glass of poisoned mineral water. He died overnight. Four days after his funeral, Jane went after the final member of the Davis family, the older daughter, 39-year-old Minnie. In the classic way of serial killers, she was escalating, unable to keep from killing for long. And her techniques were getting more gruesome, too. Minnie had a ten-year-old son. One night, instead of climbing into bed with Minnie, Jane climbed into bed with the little boy and clutched him to her heart as, downstairs, his mother slipped closer and closer to death. Minnie died the next day. The doctor who was called in to save her was absolutely confused by her symptoms. And now let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. Listening to the story of Ms. Jane Toppin might have you wondering about why exactly humans do the terrible, terrible things that they do. If you're wondering that, you should sign up for The Great Courses Plus, where you can get your questions answered by listening to audio and video lecture series like Understanding the Dark Side of Human Nature, a course that explores the unpleasant facets of human nature across the centuries. The Great Courses Plus has thousands of lectures on everything from cooking to ancient queens to serial killers that you can listen to on your phone like a podcast or watch via video. For an entire free month of lectures that will help you to understand humanity better, though I can't promise that you'll ever fully understand why Jane Toppin was so into morphine, 
Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and enter code FREEMO. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and enter the code F-R-E-E-M-O. Our next sponsor is BetterHelp. Is there something standing between you and your happiness? Is that something the dark figure of Jane Toppin? No? Huh, good. But if there's something in your life that you're struggling with, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. It's a convenient, safe, and private way to connect with licensed professional counselors from your own home. You can talk with your counselor through video, phone, chat, or text. And this is an especially great option for you if you're looking for a specialist who's not available in your area. BetterHelp has counselors specializing in trauma, in family conflicts, in LGBT matters, in grief, even in sleeping. And plenty more specialists, although note that it is not a crisis line. Best of all, it's affordable. There's financial aid available, and my listeners can get 10% off their first month by going to betterhelp.com slash criminalbroads. You'll fill out a questionnaire and you will get started. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash criminalbroads. The entire town was shaken by these four deaths all in a row, but no one seemed to consider the fact that maybe, just maybe, the Davis family had been murdered. No one, that is, except for Minnie's father-in-law, Captain Paul Gibbs, who thought it was pretty darn weird that this entire family had been wiped out nearly overnight. Slowly, Captain Gibbs started piecing together disturbing little bits of evidence. He heard that during Minnie's final day alive, she became a little more conscious than normal. And then, at one point, she saw Jane come into the room, and she looked terrified. He himself had seen Jane inject something into Minnie, and he hadn't liked Jane's body language. There was something strange and secretive about the way she'd handled the needle. He even talked to a doctor who knew the family and had his own suspicions about the father's death, since the father, Alden, had been perfectly healthy a few days before he died. Eventually, feeling satisfied that something fishy had happened, Captain Gibbs managed to get a detective to start looking into the deaths, and plans were made to have the two Davis daughters' bodies exhumed. Jane had no idea any of this was taking place. She'd moved on to another project, which was almost as deranged as murdering an entire family. She was trying to marry her dead foster sister's husband, Oramel. First, she tried to make him fall in love with her by killing every other woman in his life, his housekeeper and his sister, just to make sure that his eyes were on Jane and Jane alone. Then, she became his housekeeper and tried to win his love with her expert dusting and organizational skills. When that didn't work, she poisoned him, just a bit, in the hopes that her excellent nursing would seduce him right into her arms. And when that didn't work, she threatened him, saying that if he didn't marry her, she'd tell everyone that she was pregnant and that he was the father. At that, Oramel told her to get out of his house. In one last dramatic attempt to make him realize just what he was missing, Jane tried to kill herself. At least, she pretended to try to kill herself. Jane took just enough morphine to send her into an unconscious state, but notably, she didn't give herself a fatal dose, and if anyone knew what a fatal dose of morphine was, it was Jane. 
Her suicide attempt may have been more performative than practical, a last-ditch effort to make Oromel realize that his life would be nothing without her. Like everything else she did, it just freaked Oromel out. As soon as she recovered, he kicked her out for good. In the meantime, the investigation against her was unfolding, though slowly. Papers picked up on the fact that the Davis family deaths were being looked into as something unnatural, though that story fell off the front pages of the papers when America's president, William McKinley, was shot by an anarchist and died of complications on September 14, 1901. Jane might have read about the assassination with relief. Maybe now people would stop all that silly talk of exhuming the bodies of the Davises and leave her alone so she could focus on killing even more people. By this point, she was living with a couple of friends, recovering from her suicide attempt, and dreaming offhandedly about murdering them, too. She had no idea that a detective had been trailing her for weeks, or that Minnie's body had been exhumed and autopsied, or that poison had been discovered inside Minnie. On October 29, 1901, Jane Toppin was arrested. She appeared perfectly calm when the police showed up to take her away. Detectives initially assumed that Jane had poisoned her patients with arsenic. It was, after all, the go-to poison for female serial killers, and arsenic had been discovered in Minnie's body. And so the detectives grew frustrated when they couldn't find any evidence of Jane actually buying arsenic. As they continued to hunt, newspapers were printing every story about Jane that they could possibly dream up. This was a massive case, and everyone in the country was obsessed with it, And so journalists were determined to cover it from every imaginable angle. Everyone wanted to know Jane's motive. Money was an obvious one, especially since there were plenty of anecdotes about her tendency to steal. And so journalists wrote stories about how Jane Toppin was driven by greed. At this point, no one had any idea that she killed because it gave her pleasure. As Jane's list of suspected victims grew longer and longer, some people still believed in her innocence. In jail, she was often visited by her old patients, you know, the ones she'd chosen not to kill. Jane herself was feeling optimistic about her chances, because even though the papers were painting her as a multi-murderess who was definitely guilty, the police were finding it hard to build an actual case against her. As it turned out, the arsenic that had been discovered in Minnie's body and then in Genevieve's was from the embalming fluid. That was a blow to the prosecution's case. Sure, people seemed to die with awful frequency when Jane was nursing them, but where was the cold, hard proof that she'd murdered them? Yes, Jane was feeling pretty good about herself. When she had to appear in court, she did so wearing a starched white nurse's collar, as though to remind everyone of her true profession, not serial killer, but caregiver. She released a creepily confident statement that read, The fact that I am innocent will be established when the hearing is held next week. If there is any justice in Massachusetts, I shall be cleared. I cannot see how I can be convicted of a crime I never committed. I admit that the many deaths of which I am supposed to be the cause form strong circumstantial evidence, but they may have been due to many causes. She went on to explain how the drinking water was bad and the summer heat was deadly for the elderly, and then concluded, 
Each of the people who died I knew personally and was on friendly terms with. I would not kill a chicken. And in jail, Jane started writing a book, a romance novel. She was pretty sure it was going to be a bestseller, and she was debating between three titles, Maud's Misery, Sweet Blue Eyes, or Fair Fettered Florence. Unfortunately for Jane, her dreams of becoming a successful author were never to be realized. It took a while, but investigators finally discovered what had actually killed Minnie and Genevieve. Not the arsenic from the embalming fluid, but a combination of morphine and atropine, Jane Toppin's two favorite poisons. Investigators also found a slew of witnesses who had seen or heard Jane ordering those particular drugs. By December, she was charged with three murders, those of the two Davis daughters and of Alden Davis, the father. She entered a plea of not guilty. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the age-old serial killer question now emerged in Jane's case. Was she insane or not? A group of psychiatrists were assigned to examine her, and she greeted them with cheery confidence. At first, she lied a bit, telling them that she couldn't have possibly killed anyone because she was so terrified of corpses. But it didn't take long for her to change her tune. Perhaps it was that old psychopath's pride. She wanted credit for what she'd done. She wanted to talk about it. And so, like a dam breaking open, Jane Toppin started to confess. She told the doctors that she had killed 12 people, though the doctors were pretty sure she'd killed far more than that. During her confession, she was completely calm. She showed zero remorse, and she even described her victims as her friends. She explained away the murders as though she was explaining why she substituted butter for shortening in a pie crust recipe. It was just something she decided to do. It wasn't a hostile action. She hadn't meant anything bad by it. When she tried to walk the doctors through each step of the murders, she became fuzzy on many of the specific details because, as she said, poisoning had become a habit of her life. Though journalists had been wondering if her motive was money, the doctors soon learned that her motive was far more disturbing than that. She told them all about how she loved to offer her victims a tall, cool glass of mineral water spiked with poison, and she said that after they finished drinking it down, she, quote, experienced great relief and always slept well afterward. She told them about how she liked to creep into bed with her victims and hold them tightly like a lover. By the time she was done talking, there was no mistake about it. Jane said that she felt, quote, the desire to experience sexual excitement by killing people. Still, despite her seeming openness and her calm demeanor, Jane was ultimately unable to be truly introspective about her crimes. She could only be introspective about the fact that she wasn't introspective. I cannot make sense of it at all, she said. Another time, she stated, I seem to have a sort of paralysis of thought and reason. I have an uncontrollable desire to give poison without regard to consequences. I have no objection against telling my own feelings, but I don't know my own mind. I don't know why I do these things. Though Jane insisted that she was perfectly sane, 
the doctors declared her insane. When they summed up their findings, they described her as having an utter lack of moral sense and an absence of sense of fear before, during, or after the commission of her crime and of remorse, sorrow, or genuine affection at any time. This was a perfect description of a classic psychopath, though the actual term psychopath wasn't around back then. Moral insanity was the preferred term instead. Like other psychopathic serial killers throughout history, Jane seems to have gotten a sort of pleasure not just from the act of killing, but from the act of confessing. She didn't just confess to the doctors. She'd also confessed to her defense lawyer, though to him, she said that her victim count was not 12, but 31. As she described them to him, one by one, she had to count on her fingers to make sure she remembered them all. Her trial started on June 23, 1902. A group of women, early true crime fans, camped out overnight by the courthouse in hopes of getting a seat. Though everyone wanted to get a glimpse of the murderess, the trial promised to be short. The question wasn't whether or not she'd done it, because everyone agreed that she had. It was whether or not she was not guilty by reason of insanity. Jane was in a good mood that morning. She ate a hearty breakfast and told the jailhouse matron that she'd finally decided on the title for her romance novel. She was going to call it Sweet Blue Eyes. She fussed over her wardrobe, and when she finally appeared in court, she was wearing a hat with a dark veil and a white ribbon around her throat. Eight hours later, the trial was over. The jurors declared her not guilty by reason of insanity, and the judge sentenced her to life at Taunton Insane Hospital. Upon hearing her sentence, Jane Toppin laughed out loud. Shortly after her trial, Jane's confession was published in the papers. It was probably edited, maybe even a little bit ghostwritten, but it lined up with the confession she'd given to the psychiatrists who examined her. In it, Jane claimed that she was totally sane and that she'd convinced the doctors to diagnose her as insane by claiming that she was sane. She said that insane people always declared that they were sane and so she'd adopted that attitude while being examined. I was too smart for the whole of them, she wrote. I have more spunk and grit of any person living. She also wrote that she had probably killed more than 31 people, but that 31 was just the number she could remember. Was Jane sane, though? If she was, then she'd made a huge mistake in trying to get thrown into the asylum. There, the inmates were treated like animals, not humans. Restrained force-fed drugs, worked to the bone, beaten. A reporter who visited Jane there wrote that she looked very different compared to the other female inmates who wandered about babbling to themselves with matted hair. Jane sat there, clean and neatly dressed, and apparently in perfect control of her mind. The reporter left, concluding that death by electric chair would have been a better sentence than the one Jane got. In 1903, the asylum's superintendent wrote a damning report of what we can see now was Jane's psychopathic nature. 
It read, in part, In all my conversations with her respecting the homicides, which she freely admits, she has exhibited no remorse, regret, or sorrow for any of them but rather a sense of pride and satisfaction that the number was so large as to give her distinction above all other poisoners whose histories are known. This lack of pity and sorrow for others in trouble or distress has been evident whenever any difficulty has occurred on the ward between patients or between a nurse and patients. At such times, she has manifested a good deal of glee and laughed like a silly child but never expressed any sympathy or pity for the patient or person in distress or trouble. Trouble or pain for others seems to excite in her merriment and joy instead of sorrow. Jane may have been in control of her mind when she entered the asylum, but gradually, whatever sanity she had left began to slip away from her. Her letters to friends grew strange and manic. She started talking about how much fun she was having at the asylum and how she was, quote, rolling on the floor with laughter. I begin to feel like rolling on the floor now, she wrote. I like to feel that way. I am having a big time, big in the sewing room. One night, she woke up screaming. Another time, she declared that she was going to become a nun. She became paranoid and convinced that she herself was being poisoned. She stopped eating. She thought that everyone was trying to murder her. She'd been healthy and plump. Now she grew emaciated, skeletal. Newspapers had a field day with the irony. Terror-stricken poisoner afraid of death by poison, read one headline. But no one was poisoning Jane, and she lived on and on and on, lived all the way to the ripe old age of 81 when she died of bronchopneumonia. In the last half of her life, her paranoia had faded, and she'd become a docile patient, only occasionally lashing out. Whatever fog had settled over Jane's brain in her later years, she'd been terribly lucid about her crimes when she was committing them. Just because she didn't feel guilt or remorse didn't mean she didn't know exactly what she was doing. She knew exactly how much morphine she was injecting how much atropine she was dissolving into mineral water. She knew exactly what it meant when her patient's pupils grew big or shrank, or when their breath got fast or slow. She knew exactly what she was doing, and she wanted to make sure the world knew exactly what she'd done, too. It annoyed her when people got her story wrong. For instance, when she was arrested, there were rumors spreading about how she hated men and was a bitter old spinster, and that's why she killed people. Jane didn't like those rumors because they weren't the truth. They say that I do not like men, that I am a sour old maid and man-hater, she wrote in her confession. But it isn't so. I like them, and I like to nurse them. That's all. Wow, Jane Toppin. Um, not so nice, right? I guess that's the conclusion we take away from this episode. Jane Toppin, no thank you. That If I was running for president, that would be my slogan. 
I would get like 20 votes, but they would all be very passionate ones. Um, thank you for going with me on this horrifying journey. I guess I have to say goodbye for a while, but where do I leave you? Well, first of all, before that, I want to thank the patrons who make this episode possible and who are the starry light in my eyes and the joy in my heart. I would like to thank Caitlin Shoemaker, my patron, and Stephen Lannis, who I actually know in person, and I told him not to become a patron, but he became a patron anyway. So thank you so much, Caitlin and Stephen. For anyone else who wants to support the podcast or see some behind-the-scenes details, you can go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads and sign up. Or there's a link in the show notes, of course, as always. Um, what else? Well, I would love to know what some of you are dressing up for uh, for Halloween. So send an email to criminalbroads at gmail.com and tell me. Or find me on Instagram at criminalbroads, where you can also see... I won't say photos of Jane Toppin because there's really only one, but um, whatever photos I can scrounge up of this case and this time and place. Um, and I hope you all have a wonderful fall and winter. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the support, for the messages, for just the general kindness you send my way. Um, feel free to go listen to old episodes if you get if you need your criminal broad fix, though I will warn you. I think the audio uh, quality probably deteriorates as we head back in time to the days when a more naive Tory tried to make the podcast without the correct pop filter or preamp. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess uh, when I talk to you again, it'll be sometime in the new year. Um, and I hope life is just wonderful for you. I know we're talking about horrible subjects here, but uh, I hope, you know, I, I hope... Life is wonderful for you until we are back in touch. And thank you again for all your support. And I will talk to you next time. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.